Well, good morning, Omaha Bible Church. Great to be with you this morning. I was not recommended by J.V. Fesco. <clears throat> that would be quite an honor. I think I might have been recommended by Mike Abendroth, and I'm not sure that is an honor. <laughs> Actually, I've never met Pastor Pat in person. We only know each other online, which is an amazing thing, the world we live in today. And But I love him, and I love this local assembly, and I love your elders your pastors, and what Omaha Bible Church stands for. Uh, Certainly thankful for uh, the grace of God that is preached here uh, every week. And I hope uh, by God's grace that I would be able to do the same this morning. And uh, so if you're able to, would you please turn your, well, if not, if you're able to, please turn your Bible to Psalm 119. Hope you have your Bible with you. Psalm 119, verse 65 through 72. As we've sung about this morning and heard about even from Psalm 73, I'm going to look at this section of Scripture and see that we need to trust in our good God. In this passage, we're reminded that God's Word, His precepts, His rules, His statutes are good and right and just, and that we are put face to face with the reality of our sin and need of grace and righteousness. And as those under the new covenant reminded that the eternal son of God came and lived these things perfectly. And in so uh, doing also went to the cross and bore the sins of all those who would believe in him in order that we might be declared right standing with God and given, or we use the term imputed, the righteousness of Christ so that we might walk in newness of life. And this is the goodness of God in which the psalmist rejoices in this passage even as he faces great affliction. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read aloud the scriptures this morning You follow along. Psalm 119, starting in verse 65. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David writes, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord Yahweh, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. You may be seated. That is the word of God. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud several times this morning. Would you join me now in prayer? Great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that as we have your word open this morning, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autographs, would now attend to our understanding through his illumination, that we might not only gain knowledge this morning, but that, Lord, we might love you more 
and show our gratitude for your grace in our life more. Lord, not seeking to earn anything from you as we understand what you call us to here, but understanding that Christ has earned it all and that we live out of his righteousness, loving you, showing our gratefulness to you, and Lord, knowing that in these things you desire what is best for us as those who are your children. So help us, Lord, we pray. I pray that you would uh, get me out of the way. May we only see the glory of the triune God in this passage this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Many of us are familiar with an encounter that Jesus has with a man, a ruler who approaches Jesus with a very important question. It is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark records it in this way. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. After this, Jesus uses this interaction as an illustration to his disciples that absolutely blows them away. In essence, he tells them uh, that those who love their possessions here, those who trust in their riches... And ultimately, what he's pointing to is they're trusting in their own righteousness, will not make it into the kingdom. Why? In one sense, their hope is not in the goodness of God, but in the good gifts of God. Their assumption is since they have that wealth, they must be in good standing with God. It is a trust in their own righteousness based on what they possess, and what they possess is those possessions, but they do not possess the righteousness of God. By the way, Jesus, loving this man, told them, told him a hard truth he could not bear. That is what love does when it comes to the issue of sin and grace. God's goodness is ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. Even as Christ asks the rich ruler here, why do you call me good? God alone is good. And why do the disciples despair when they hear that the wealthy do not inherit the kingdom of God simply because of their wealth? They seem to believe that certain, certainly those whom God has blessed on earth are the recipients of God's kingdom. But throughout his ministry, Jesus has sought to show the disciples that it is the last who will be first. This is indeed how he sums up his teaching after this interaction with this rich ruler. And the point is this, those who believe themselves to be well and well off and do not recognize their true estate as sinners who cannot live perfectly will see no need of God's goodness and his grace. But the afflicted, whether wealthy or poor, 
Those who are humble in heart, who see themselves as they should before a holy and righteous God, will turn to Him as their only perfect Savior, recognizing uh, through the, the law that they cannot accomplish what only God can accomplish, and turning to uh, Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ as the one who lived perfectly, died in the place of sinners, and rose again. And for the believer, the standard continues to be the same. We will face affliction this side of glory in a sin-cursed world. And these days before the fullness of God's glory has been revealed in His second coming, we will face affliction until we die or He comes to establish the final estate. So for now, we see this. And this is the main point that I'd like for us to get this morning. If you're one who takes notes... um, Perhaps write this down. Even in the midst of our greatest afflictions, we should trust that God is good. Even in the midst of our greatest afflictions, we should trust that God is good. And we're going to see how this goodness is expressed in Jesus Christ. So this morning I want us to see three ways we experience God, God's goodness in the midst of affliction. Three ways we experience God's goodness in the midst of affliction. The first is this in verses 65 through 67. Affliction brings perspective about God's goodness. Affliction brings perspective about God's goodness. Look again with me if you would at verses 65 through 67. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. We see here at the beginning of this section an admission of God's goodness. You have dealt well with your servant. The measure of this wellness, this goodness, is not based on some subjective standard that the psalmist himself has determined, but rather according to the Lord's word. Though we can learn something of God's majesty and glory through natural theology, uh, uh, that which we see in nature that expresses who God is, um, the heavens declare the glory of God from the psalmist's own pen, it's not enough to lead us to an understanding ultimately of uh, who God is as he gives us in his special revelation in the Bible through Jesus Christ. We learn of God's goodness through His Word, and this is the standard by which David understands the wellness with which God has dealt him. John Gill, a great Baptist preacher from centuries ago, says this, Thy word of promise, providential mercies are according to promise. For godliness or godly persons have the promise of the things of this life, and so are spiritual blessings. They are laid up in exceeding great and precious promises, which are yea and amen and Christ. And so is eternal glory and happiness. It is a promise which God, that cannot lie, made before the world began. So that there is a solid foundation laid for faith and hope as to these things. And this confirms and commends the faithfulness of God to his people. End quote. Indeed, this is the way in which David frames the very next statement. Look at verse 66 again. Teach me good judgment and knowledge for a purpose statement here, for I believe in your commandments. The expectation is that trusting in God's commandments leads to good judgment and knowledge. 
This kind of discernment is necessary in the midst of affliction. Remember, that is the framework in which we're looking at this. It's the framework of, of David here. In the midst of affliction, this kind of discernment is necessary. Why? Because if we are rooted in God's word, when affliction comes, we will see his good hand in the midst of even the hardest of trials. And it was the affliction itself that led David to God's word. It was the affliction that drove him to God's word. Before I was afflicted, verse 67 says, I went astray. And then we can insert these words, but now, after the affliction, I keep your word. In his lack of affliction, he went astray. Because of his affliction, he now keeps God's word. Many of us can likely think of times in our lives when we became lackadaisical in our walk with God. Perhaps you're in that moment now. And perhaps there are afflictions that have come to you in the midst of that. And perhaps that has driven you back to God's goodness and his grace. That's what God used perhaps in that moment to drive you to him. I was raised in the church and knew the right things to say and do in the right company, if you catch my meaning. But I had not truly trusted in Christ and was living in sin. And it was at a moment when my sin was possibly going to destroy me that I realized my wickedness and need of a perfect Savior. It was then that I turned to Christ and found delight in His Word and in His ways. That may persist in our life, this sort of times when we become relaxed in our walk with God. Not necessarily in unbelief, but as those who are believers. There are times when in our affliction even, we may, we may turn to those things which we think may satisfy, but they ultimately do not satisfy, and so we must turn back to God and His ways. I love what the second uh, London Confession says in uh, chapter 17 and paragraph 3. says, Though believers may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their uh, preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened, their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet, we're so thankful for the yet, shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Notice it is Christ to who we turn. This affliction may be from others and it may be from Within, But it is the testing of our faith for God's purposes in our lives. Namely this, that we would glorify God in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. James tells us that purpose. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That idea of perfection and completeness there is obviously not total uh, perfection this side of heaven, but maturity, as Paul speaks of in other places. Maturity in Christ. 
Of course, James goes on to tell us immediately after this, if we lack wisdom, we must ask God for it, who gives it generously without reproach. James tells us where to turn. He tells us to turn to God and his wisdom. Do we see this theme here in these verses? The affliction pushes us to see the goodness of God, as we will have confirmed for us in just a moment. But first we see the echoes here of what James tells us about the goodness of God, and that is that he is the one who can give us wisdom through his word and his commandments. And in the moment of affliction, we are pushed toward that wisdom, which is part and parcel of the goodness of God. We see this exemplified in the life of Christ, who when afflicted, submitted himself to the triune plan. Listen to 1 Peter 2. Uh, 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Notice what it says next. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're talking about Isaiah earlier, Brother Mike, weren't we? And how that just echoes through the scriptures. Peter calls us here to focus on the gospel. If the law shows us our sin, we are led to the need of the one who can perfectly live and die in our place, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For those who are not in Christ, that perhaps sit in our midst this morning, your affliction here pales in comparison to what awaits at the judgment. I plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. His perfect life, his death that you deserved, and his resurrection. For those in Christ, we agree with Paul that this light and momentary affliction is far outweighed by the glory that is to be revealed. Our hope is in what we call in theology the beatific vision, the beautiful appearing of Christ. When we see him, we will be as he is. But don't forget what John says before that. He says, how great is God's love that he has lavished on us that we should be called his children. And that is what we are currently. It's the already not yet, dear ones. It's the having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured those things that would be placed upon him at the cross he is our example as peter says and so as we're thinking about david in the psalms looking forward to the coming messiah we see the fulfillment of messiah in jesus christ Fulfilling these very things. Jesus would read the Psalms and say, this is about me. And so in perfection, Jesus does exactly this 
And we, dear ones, live out of that righteousness. And that is our hope. Even in the midst of affliction, God is good and does good. It may not, it may not feel right now like light and momentary afflictions in the midst of it. So we must lean into God's word and into his wisdom and goodness. The goodness that the psalmist expresses in the next verses. Secondly, affliction highlights God's goodness. Affliction highlights God's goodness in verses 68 through 70. This is such a forthright statement from David. Look at uh, verses, uh, verse 68. Uh, you are good and do good. <laughs> He's just talked about his afflictions that he's in the midst of. But you are good and do good. If you want a nugget of something to memorize this morning, a truth that can assuage your heart in the midst of affliction, here it is. Our triune God is good and does good. We're, of course, reminded in this moment of a theological point that God is. We call this in theology simplicity. God is not made up of parts, and therefore goodness is not a part of God. God is, and God is good. We do not fully understand goodness apart from God, and all that God is, He is in Himself, and therefore the goodness of God cannot be measured from some outside source. If someone challenges the goodness of God, ask them by which standard they measure goodness. Do you see what I'm saying? Goodness is who God is. And goodness is measured by God. And so therefore, there is no sort of outside standard where you can say, God, I want to believe that you're good, but you're just not like this. And then we try to measure God up against some standard. No, God is, and God is good. Isaiah 5, verse 20, a very familiar verse to us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What is the standard of good if not God himself? Not only is God the very definition of what is good, he by virtue of this reality only does good. No one can accuse God of evil because he cannot be tempted by evil and he tempts no one with evil. Echoes of this reality in the book of James once again. Spurgeon encourages us saying, quote, we can say no more good of God than God is and does. We believe in his goodness and so honor him by our faith. We admire that goodness and so glorify him by our love. We declare that goodness and so magnify him by our testimony. Hold on to this truth this morning, believer. God is good and does good. And because of this truth, the psalmist desires to be taught the statutes of God. God is good and does good, therefore his statutes are only good. Look at it again with me. Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. His statutes are only good. Unlike the insolent who smear David with lies, their hearts are unfeeling like fat. But even in that affliction, David keeps the law of God and delights in it. Look at it again. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart 
I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Again, we think of Peter and what he tells us about Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We must see David here as imperfectly keeping these things, as a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of Christ, the better David, who keeps them perfectly. Christ, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. David imperfectly entrusts himself to God. He imperfectly keeps his precepts, God's precepts with his whole heart. He imperfectly delights in God's law, but the better David comes and does it perfectly on our behalf. The true prophet, priest, and Davidic king. Believers, Jesus tells us, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. So the question for us this morning is, are we trusting that God is good and does good even as the enemies of our soul lie with unfeeling hearts? For those who are not in Christ, God's goodness is in concert with His righteousness. If God is and God is good, God is and He is righteous. And He cannot have evil in his presence and dwelling. Therefore, we are accepted because of the righteousness of Christ. And if we do not turn to him, even his judgments, his condemnation is good in line with that righteousness. So my call to you this morning, if you've not trusted Christ, know that he is good and he does good. And he has sent his son to live a life that you couldn't live, die a death that you deserved. And he resurrected three days later. He has ascended and we are awaiting his return. Turn to him today. And for perhaps both categories, believer and unbeliever who sit in our midst, our last point is... True, that affliction provides opportunity to learn, <clears throat> excuse me, to learn God's goodness. Look at verses 71 and 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Perhaps the affliction for the unbeliever in our midst is the opportunity to learn God's goodness and his grace towards sinners. Hear that this morning. <clears throat> God's grace through Jesus Christ. And even for those of us in Christ, it is the means that God will use to remind us of his goodness and grace that we have already experienced and continue to experience even when it doesn't feel like it. Can we say along with David the words of verse 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. A famous quote from Spurgeon, I'm sure you've heard it before, says this, I have learned to kiss the waves 
that throw me up against the rock of ages. Do you hear what he's saying? I have learned to kiss the waves, the afflictions that throw me up against the rock of ages. When we learn God's statutes, we learn about God. <laughs> when we learn God's statutes, they're, they're not something that is separate from God. They flow from who He is. When we dig into theology, like I mentioned earlier, the simplicity of God. God is all that He is in and of Himself. Mere intellectual assent will not teach us what we need to know and remember in the midst of affliction. Do we believe such theology in order to learn who our triune God is and learn that He is our only hope and treasure? I loved every song we sang this morning. It just echoes that reality that God is our treasure. When we learn about God's statutes, we learn about God. And treasure indeed is where David turns in verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Here we talk about, um, and I think you guys hear this often too, the third use of the law. Um, Not as a means to earn anything from God, but as a, a means of love to God and gratitude to God for what he has done for us a means of delighting in who God is and, and, and even an understanding that God um, gives us these because they are our true delight in Him as we learn of Him, knowing that only He can satisfy. We do what God says, not because it earns anything for us, but because we love Him and desire to please our gracious God who is good and does good. Again, John Gill says, the truths and doctrines of the Word of God are not only comparable to gold and silver for their intrinsic worth and value, but are preferable to them and to be received before them. David had his thousands of gold and silver, but he esteemed the Word of God above them all and willingly suffered afflictions that he might understand it better. We don't think in those terms, do we? We don't often consider that we ought to think of the word of God above all riches and willingly suffer afflictions? Are you kidding me? I don't want to do that. But here we see David and then we think of the echoes of the greater David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, willingly suffering afflictions for our sake. For David to understand better who God is. And unlike the rich ruler who walks away because he cannot conceive of giving up his earthly goods to follow Christ, not because the earthly goods were in and of themselves an issue, but the heart behind it of, I've, I've done all those things, Jesus. And, and then to say, <laughs> you lack one thing. How many sins does it take for us not to be declared right standing before God. Just one. Just one. This is the, the law. 
The law demands perfection. And that's what Jesus calls this man upon. You can't do it perfectly. <laughs> and, and it's juxtaposed to Jesus asking the man, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? He's claiming to be God. You're right. I am good. The problem is you think that you're good as well and you fall short. The law demands absolute perfection and only one person has done that and he has done it for us and he was put to death because of it. Unlike the rich ruler, in order for us here to understand this, we realize that the best riches are found in Christ. And we are enabled only to do this by Christ's own righteousness and what he has lived in his life upon the earth. What he did upon the cross and in his resurrection. We too walk in newness of life because we have died to our sin in him and are raised in him in order that we might live like him in righteousness. So what does this mean for us? We must take these truths today and seek to apply them to our own hearts and lives, not uh, seeking to, uh, we, we want to strive in some way to earn favor with God. It's still that part of us that needs to be redeemed in some sense. But we rest in Christ, not that we don't fight against sin, but we realize that Christ is the one and it is his righteousness in which we stand. So we then take this to our neighbors, to our family members, we even within our own churches, parents and grandparents, you know, preparing children and fellow believers for uh, life in Christ like this. The trials of life come and the certainty of the triune God and his word is the only rock upon which we can stand. The only solution for sin and the effects of this fallen world is the rock of ages. Christ who lived the perfect life we could not, died the death we deserved and rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death. That is our hope in the midst of affliction. So we can not not struggle with affliction or persecution or sin but we can smile as we think of Christ our redeemer who stood in our place all of us have experienced affliction to one degree or another perhaps you're here this morning and you've experienced it to a degree that is just so crushing. And yet your pastors and your church family, if you are in Christ, have come alongside of you and encouraged you to look to Christ. But perhaps you're here and your afflictions have been great and you have yet to turn to Christ. My call to you this morning is to do that. Would you pray with me? It is only 
Lord, by your grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ and by your spirit that we are able to stand declared righteous before you, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, our debt imputed to him. He made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we thank you, Lord, for justification being declared right standing for sanctification, Lord, even through our affliction, teaching us to walk in the footsteps of Christ. And Lord, our eyes are set towards glorification, the beautiful vision of Christ and his appearing when all these things, our own sin, the sins of others against us will be done away with. We thank you that that is at the cross, that that was taken care of at the cross and the full effects of it are yet to come. But that promise is true. Lord, help us to trust you. And I pray for those who do not know you that they would come and find one of the pastors, one of the deacons, one of their friends here and understand what it means to trust in Christ alone. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.